How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod in the next 24 hours, Canada's population is 40 million people. We discuss the impact our growing population is having on Metro Vancouver, our healthcare system, and the economy. And could the longest-running municipal soap opera be coming to a close as Surrey Council meets in an in-camera meeting to potentially decide between the RCMP and the SPS? We'll have complete coverage. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's look at Seymour Health Clinic. Now, when Seymour Health Clinic first opened in 2018, the provincial government held a press conference announcing the opening of the Urgent Primary Care Clinic. Now, it was supposed to be a location uh, where all expertise was sort of under one roof. Think uh, nurse practitioners, family doctors, plus the place where all diagnostic work would be done. So think lab work, ultrasounds and x-rays all in one place. Now, the clinic's owners spent millions under the assumption, of course, to set it all up uh, and spend all that money on all that equipment and HR, of course, and and, and labor. All that was done under the assumption the clinic could build the provincial medical service plan for the diagnostic work. Well, it never happened. Now, the clinic owners claim Vancouver Coastal Health covered a very small portion of those diagnostic tests since 2018, leaving Seymour Health on the edge of insolvency. So what went wrong? Well, joining me now to discuss the issue uh, is Dr. Ed Kadeski. He's a Chief Medical Health Officer for Seymour Health. Dr. Kadeski, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. What is the present present situation with Seymour Health? Well, the current situation is that we were asked to build an urgent primary care centre. We did that and we connected it to primary care, specialist care and diagnostics, all in one site to meet the needs of the community. But unfortunately, the promises of support that we received from the health authority and the government uh, have not been fulfilled. And so we've had to take legal action in order to protect the care that we provide our patients. How did this um, uh, uh, fall short? Uh, generally, when you do going into something like this, obviously the private sector knows what they're going to be investing uh, in, the requirements and needs of that, the financial needs, and generally where uh, and how the bills would be paid. How did the government, in your mind, fall short in regards to paying for those diagnostic services? Yeah, well, there are two ways to be paid. The first would be through the health authority, Vancouver Coastal in this case. It costs about $2.1 million to run the diagnostics that we have. Those are lab, ultrasound, and x-ray that people who come to the urgent care center can use in order to get timely diagnosis of potentially life-threatening conditions. It costs $2.1 million to operate those every year. Vancouver Coastal Health only provides us with $180,000. At the time, the government asked us to build the urgent care center as quickly as possible as part of what was then a new initiative. Uh, We built it in 90 days. And there were promises that we would be able to get reimbursed for the diagnostic services. But unfortunately, until now, our multiple attempts uh, to receive that approval uh, have all been denied. And so we are actually providing those services for free. 
even though they are medically necessary and would otherwise be done much in a much more costly way in emergency rooms. And we actually did that to the tune of $10 million out of our own budget just because we couldn't say no to, to people who were in need. Uh, what is what was the reasoning Coastal Health gave to you as to why they wouldn't pay for those diagnostic tests, though the cost that you're incurring? Well, this, this, this is a point of great confusion. We've heard over and over again and in multiple interviews how happy they are with the services that we provide. We hear from patients how delighted they are to get full-service care, the right care at the right time, all in one place, where their family doctors are, where their specialists are. They're able to get uh, urgent and timely testing done. So if they have potentially an appendicitis or a blood clot or a pregnancy complication, it's all done right there. Um, and so we're, we're shocked that we're not being supported. And this model of a community health centre or team-based care that we would hope would be scaled throughout British Columbia, seeing the crises in places like Langley and Surrey and the overcrowded, overburdened emergency rooms and the lack of family doctors. We would have hoped a model like this would be scaled. Instead, we're fighting for its very survival. Uh, You raised the issue in this this last answer there. I mean, this is the present and future in regards to how we're going to deal with these situations. Of course, it's all user pay, one user pay, but really there is obviously some private sector involvement here, but one would argue this is the model moving forward where you do have a single payer uh, and there is opportunity for um, disruption and more importantly, uh, innovation within the system. I want to be very clear. All of the services are through the public health care system. Seymour Health is just an independent operator, mm-hmm. and we've done it in a very lean way. And our UPCC is only one of three in the whole province that is connected to primary care and the only one with advanced diagnostics, such as ultrasound, and also the only one connected to specialists. So we're able to have pediatricians and obstetricians on site who can come down and provide consultations. So no one has ever had to pay for any of the services we've provided. And in fact, not only that, but the government itself hasn't paid for over $10 million of services that we've provided because until the recent aggressive and unnecessary legal action from Vancouver Coastal Health, we continue to provide those services uh, in good faith because that's what our patients and our community need. Uh, in regards to other provinces, do we see more Seymour Healths, uh, your type of operation in other provinces? When we look around the world, we see that the best healthcare systems are founded on strong primary care, and we know that team-based care is a way to extend the family doctors that we have. We've seen in other places difficulties of clinics uh, closing, difficulties with recruitment, and yet we have very high levels of satisfaction from our doctors, nurses, and staff, and we have very high levels of retention. And so we want to be able to continue managing and operating the entire system because it all complements each other. The urgent care, primary care, specialty care, and diagnostics together providing patients with the care that they need at the time they need it. Can this issue be addressed before it goes to court? Uh, again, we're, we are open and to uh, any sort of resolution. We want to be able to continue with this model. We want to spread this model to all the parts of British Columbia where people don't have a family doctor, the one million people without a family doctor, where people wait hours and hours for a walk-in clinic or 17 hours to be seen in the emergency room. This is a solution that we've proven works. We've proven it's efficient. We've proven it's a great use of public funds, and it's a way to help a burnt-out, 
about uh, medical profession. And so we want to work with the government and the health authorities to bring this to the people of British Columbia as opposed to fighting for its survival. Dr. Kadeski, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Let's touch on uh, a big day tomorrow for Canada. At about noon, uh, this country's population uh, hits 40 million people. I remember when I was younger growing up, it was about 22, 25 million. Uh, so 40 million is a, is a, is a very important date, uh, an important mark uh, for Canada. I haven't checked the uh, Stats Canada site in the last hour or so, but I know two hours ago we had 39,997,131 people. So we're just under, uh, we just need just under 3,000 more people uh, and we hit 40 million people. And Stats Canada estimates we should hit 40 million uh, Canadians uh, tomorrow at about 12 noon. Joining me now is Jerry Mayer Judson, our uh, show contributor, and of course our producer, Stephen Chang. Jerry and Stephen, welcome. Well, thanks, Jazz. Hello, Jazz. Hello. It's an important day, and I know both of you uh, went out today to talk to our fellow British Columbians, get their thoughts on this, because partially, I'm going to go to you first, Jerry. I mean, uh, you know, the conversation we sometimes have even on this show is that, hey, look, we support immigration, but man, with housing, transportation, this city is expensive. Let's uh, maybe slow down or shut down immigration at least for a couple of years and, uh, and uh, you know, wait till we've built enough and have enough space and get going again. I was, I was very curious in regards to uh, what people thought. Give me your sense of when you were out there. What was it like talking to folks? Um, it was like lots of differing opinions, actually. There wasn't sort of one singular consensus. No one, I expected to hear more about housing. Yeah. Um, however, I had a particular interesting conversation with some folks who were uh, here on vacation. And uh, so they had an interesting perspective about kind of where they were from and how that differs in terms of just density and amount of people in one place. Well, let's, let's take a listen uh, to those comments. Canada's population is about to hit 40 million people. Um, pretty big milestone. What do you think? Do you think Canada is full? Do you think we need more people? I don't think we need more people, but we have the space to let more people in and we're privileged enough to have a good country. Yeah, if they could produce valuable work in Canada, I think that's fine. It's a small population. That's a very small population. I guess they spend too much taxes too for that amount of population. We're from Texas, so... Oh. I say go big. Go big. I love it. I think you have a lot of space compared <laughs> to Germany. <laughs> so definitely, because we, we really like uh, the space and the nature and stuff like that. But it's also like, I, I understand that it's also like difficult because of the nature. And when the population rises, it's maybe difficult with the, with the nature and stuff like that. that stuff like that, that because you need space. But when you have like, we don't know if you have like enough space and room in Vancouver. So if there's enough space, it's... Of course, it's totally fine. I think I, I like it because it's like one of the main cities here here in Canada. So it's it's perfect. We are from Berlin, so we're like also the capital from Germany. We have a lot of people there as well. Canada is about to hit 40 million people in terms of their population in the next couple of days, maybe even today. Do you think Canada is full? Do we have more room for other people to come in? Excellent. Bring them in. The more people we have here to make our country stronger, the better it is. I feel like Vancouver is so full of people and yeah, it's hard to say, but I think we need to get some controls. I live in Langley, and the streets there are not supporting all the cars and all the construction and everything that's going on. So 
I think if we want to bring more people, we need to improve our infrastructure and a lot of things to be prepared to receive more people. It's a very privileged mindset. So everyone here, you, me, it's all immigration territory. The real uh, people of this land are, are the indigenous. So ask these questions to them. Interesting a uh, answers. What I found um, interesting about what they had to say was, you know, the the um, uh, the the couple there from Germany. Uh, you know, Canada is going to be very large for them. Lots of space. That's what they're going to think, and, and they're right. Uh, but they're also saying, like the, the the one individual said, Langley streets are full. And if you've been to Langley, they're absolutely right. On a busy day, most busy days, uh, the amount of young families that are growing there. So it's a huge challenge. Stephen, what did you think? I mean, you come in from Richmond every day, yeah. fast-growing community as well. I think Canadians are incredibly patient. Mm -hmm. But even on this show, you hear a lot of folks saying, wait a minute here. We're full here. Let's just slow down a little bit. Yeah, definitely. We have a lot of problems, especially in this city that we're dealing with overpopulation and a lot, like a lot of issues with health care, housing, especially. I think that's the biggest concern that people have. So I think generally when you ask someone uh, if they think there's there's more room for people in Canada, like housing is going to be an issue for sure. But then I think generally what people think is that, yeah, like come to Canada, there's more opportunity. There's always room for more people to come to Canada and give them like a new life and such. So I think that's kind of the general consensus that we got from the responses that we got today with Jerry. Uh, but then it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, I think overall. It, you know, I was looking at the numbers now last year, uh, we've had the, probably the, actually the biggest number for immigration in this country, 1 million people. Generally it's never that high, but uh, it was for a variety of reasons. 90 96%, part of it was COVID, 96% of those million and 50,000 people that did come uh, were immigrants. So it wasn't natural natural birth. Uh, we are uh, going to about 500,000 people coming to this country by 2025 on average per year. It's about 460 uh, next year, 480 the year after that. So we are slowly building up. But the challenge we have is that in 2015, get this, there were more Canadians age 65 and older then between birth and 14, the age of 14 for the first time in Canadian history. So 2015, we had more peop, older people than those who are 14 and under. So it gives you a sense that we got pensions to pay for, healthcare coverage to pay for. And Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't we have, um, um, we had a group here uh, the other day we interviewed in regards uh, to the beverage industry. Mm -hmm. And they were saying they had 20,000 openings in British Columbia, just in the beverage industry. So that's, uh, you know, moving uh, alcohol throughout this province, yeah. producing it restaurants and everything else. We let 100,000 people come to this province every month. One out of five would work just in the restaurant and beverage industry. Think about that. Yeah, probably for sure. Well, that's that's the opening we have. Those are the openings that we have right now in our province. So those who do say that, hey, uh, let's shut down immigration for a couple of years, um, where are you going to find those workers? And last time I checked, we have an aging population as well, right? So there you go. Jerry, thank you. Thank you. Stephen, thank you. Thank you. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about... Uh, the longest-running soap opera in municipal politics, of course, uh, is uh, Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Let me give you some words of wisdom from my dad before we get into yeah. politics. What always stands out to what he has said to me is 10% is what happens to you, and 90% of it is how you react to it. 
Very, you and, know, and I think about that often. I, I now try to teach that to my kids who don't react particularly well to a lot of things, Josh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's first of all wonderful advice, and you you really appreciate advice that advice as you get older. You really understand problems are always going to be there. It's how you react to them that's most important. So uh, that is very I good to advice. A problem that that Mayor Brenda Locke is trying to react to now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I uh, I uh, texted somebody uh, during the news break, and so I'm told that four o two of six minutes ago, they're still in the middle of that meeting. They're still talking. So uh, I'm not sure when that meeting will end, but it was scheduled from two till four. So I think in the next hour, hopefully uh, things will change. But let's talk a little bit about where we're at right now. Uh, they have this in-camera meeting. There potentially could be a vote in regards to SPS or sticking with the RCMP. We also know the Surrey Police Union sent, uh, through their president, sent a letter to the SPS, uh, Chief Constable Normal Pinsky, saying basically that, hey, look, uh, if they decide to go with RCMP, we do not wish to be part of that transition. We would like you to begin the process of paying us out uh, in regards to severance packages. We also know of a letter sent two days ago from the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, saying basically uh, that uh, here are the parameters in regards to how this will be judged. We want to make sure resourcing uh, is appropriate, whatever direction you decide to go, whether it's RCMP or SPS. They also He also reiterated, of course, in that report that uh, the RCMP cannot cannot cherry pick uh, and grab members from other detachments in the lower mainland or throughout British Columbia where there is a shortage. Uh, and as he said to us on the show uh, that day, uh, uh, the other day, he, he basically wants to have an agreed set of facts. So let's talk about what your report that the city hall level says and what our report for the province says. Let's agree on some facts and then uh, you go ahead and vote. But I don't think they've had that type of cooperation yet. What's your assessment of all this, Richard? Yeah, so like you, I've been phoning around to councillors today uh, and texting since they've been in this meeting. And I've never quite seen a council meeting like this in since was jazz. Some of these councillors didn't even know why they were being called into this meeting. Like, was this a meeting about a conversation to agree to send information to the province? Was this a meeting to look at the plan that the city has prepared to bring forward to the province? Or was this a meeting to vote on the plan in terms of next steps? And all of those things are critical here because there are a number of things that this council must decide. Uh, I'm not convinced, and I'm not sure you are either, that this council is willing to provide that information to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth. And I think based on that letter that the minister sent, it would be a big mistake because, uh, in essence, you would be trying to pass a plan that the minister believes his ministry would not approve. And by doing so, you could seriously jeopardize the decision-making power you have as a city. Because if the province doesn't believe the the city is making decisions based on its criteria, based on those conditions, eventually the minister and the government will step in and say, you are not meeting the conditions here. We are imposing a police force upon you, and that police force is the Surrey Police Service. Uh, and, and, you know, further to what you're saying here, um, 
uh, my understanding is the city felt, or certain some people within council and, and, and the city felt that we provide our information. It sets a precedent where our our corporate information, our agendas, are going to be sent to the government for approval before we can actually look at them. And I don't think they wanted to do that. Which you know, yeah. if, you, if, you, if this is a huge decision, why not work together? Why not cooperate? Number one. So it, it's a bit of a, a shallow argument, in, in my opinion. My my understanding also in the report that has been prepared, you know. As we all know, Mr. Minister Farnworth has said that the RCMP can't go poach uh, officers from other detachments because there's already a shortage in our province, so that he has, they have difficulty ramping up, in his opinion. My th- my understanding is the city feels that, wait a minute here, what are, what are the constraints on SPS? How do you know that SPS can ramp up, uh, that they need up to 800 officers as well in total? So they're going to have challenges as well. So And that wasn't part of the province's um, report. It wasn't a part of... Uh, sort of the the limits that they put on SPS as well from the province's report. So my worry is they decide to stick with the RCMP, and then you sort of look around and go, now what? Right, and and part of this is about the staffing limitations. So you mentioned, can Surrey Police Service staff up fast enough? And a lot of that is tied to the Justice Institute. The province controls the Justice Institute. They have made commitments that they will uh, expedite people through that system. The other crucial piece here, and it's often forgotten, you and I have talked about this a few times, is about the timeline here. The Surrey RCMP, at least for the next few years, is contracted to provide policing for the community. That will remain. Surrey Police provides services part of its transition to become the police force. If the vote moves forward with the Surrey RCMP, the Surrey Police Force will immediately withdraw its services. They are not contracted to provide that service. It's that gap that Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is so worried about. And the RCMP is saying the same thing. They're going to fast-track people through depot. They will get people into Surrey. There is no possible way they can fast-track people fast enough to fill that void that would be left by the Surrey Police Service. So it's that short-term period of time that is so hugely problematic for the province that even amongst all of Brenda Locke's concerns about the province's plan, uh, she does not have a solution for that issue that has been raised. Uh, I'm curious, um, what do you think this means in regards to just um, a, a, a Vancouver a Metro Vancouver Police Force or a Vancouver Island Police Force? Uh, I mean, does this set us back a decade in regards to getting there as a province? I think there's a lack of political will to move forward on it, Jazz. It's one of those things where they could create a committee right now, the legislature, and they could forge forward with figuring out a roadmap for regional and provincial policing. And there, uh, at this point, is no will to do that from the Solicitor General. He keeps referring to this as a multi-legislature issue. It's likely going to be a multi-decade issue. Um, And the longer you wait on the planning, the longer it takes to implement potentially tied to the fact that this has been highly problematic, I would have thought it would have gone the other way, Jazz, that the minister would have looked at how difficult this situation and said enough is enough. Like we need to find a streamlined approach to manage policing in the province through federal and uh, provincial resources to ensure that municipalities get the resources they need. We'll see if there's clarity once we get through the Surrey issue. The Surrey issue just has been so overwhelming for the minister over the last uh 10 months or nine months or so since the municipal election that I think we need to get through that before they even can see any clear path towards uh, what I think is inevitable, uh, large, munis- large regional police forces 
uh, here on southern Vancouver Island and in Metro Vancouver, and then a provincial force for the rest of BC. Um, we talked about uh, um, a bet and uh, a legendary burger platter. Uh, right now, my thinking is that if there is a vote, council goes ahead with the RCMP, uh, and the minister just comes in and said, wait a minute, our report said that they are not able to ramp up, and hence I'm concerned over policing and the r- resources that law enforcement requires, not just for Surrey, but for all of British Columbia, I'm going to say that you move forward and stick with SPS. I mean, is that, I mean, if you're a betting man, I still think it's headed in that direction. I do, and I think the minister, we know, has that power to do so. Uh, it would be shocking after everything we've heard from the mayor about transparency and leading the public through this and giving them all the information they can get that her council would vote in camera out of the public's eye around such a crucial issue. It just it would be hard for me to believe that right now they are voting on this rather than I would expect they're voting on something like, should we share this report for the province or voting on next steps, not on that final decision. But who knows? This is one of those things that have been impossible to predict. But in terms of the final result, this council seems dug in on this idea that the RCMP is the path forward. And even though the province hasn't imposed any firm deadlines, my sense from those letters that we've been seeing over the last few weeks, that the province is getting sick and tired of this. Yeah. And eventually there's going to be an imposition of, of what they want, which is the Surrey Police Service. Richard, thank you. My pleasure, Jeff. Let's revisit um, one of our top stories today. Stats Canada tells us that tomorrow, around 12 noon, Canada's population hits 40 million people. Uh, Right now, we're at about 39,997,000 and a couple of hundred more. On top of that, so we're just under just under 3,000 uh, more people that we need in this country. Uh, and by tomorrow at about noon, Stats Canada estimates we will have 40 million. Significant in the sense that uh, uh, the country is growing at about 2.7%, which is the highest level since 1957. Uh, we're planning to bring in about um, 465,000 new permanent residents this year in Canada, 485,000 in 2024, and 500,000 in 2025. And I was saying earlier, um, I recall having debates, um, reporting on debates when it comes to uh, uh, immigration in the 1990s, where we would debate 225,000 people coming to this country. So uh, it is um, it is a significant increase. Well, joining me now to talk about uh, us hitting the the um, landmark day tomorrow with 40 million people is Andy Yen, an urban planner and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Andy, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. How important uh, is this in Canada's history? I think that it marks a period of remarkable change that we haven't really seen since the 1920s when we talk about immigration shaping the face of the country. Uh, And uh, overall, do you think we've done a decent job absorbing these people in this country and and trying to provide them with a with a decent standard of living or at least the opportunity to build their lives? Well, I think that that's really one of the ongoing challenges. Um, We certainly know the challenges when we talk about housing, but I think increasingly we know that there are, I think, bigger 
additional issues, I should say, around economic participation and, and, and means to get to that participation through transportation. That I think that there is still, I think, a pretty profound challenge as we invite the world to Canada, but yet at the same time, we don't seem to be willing to invest in the support systems that can uh, allow them to succeed. Uh, I, we were doing a, a housing segment uh, uh, last week, and I think we were mm-hmm. estimating Canada needs about five. 5.8 million homes by 2030. It's about 800,000 new homes that we need to build in this country every single year. And I think mm-hmm. we peaked in building homes. I think 220,000 was the number in 1972. We still struggle mm-hmm. to hit about that now, yet we need 800,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the rate mm-hmm. we're going, that's the people that are coming here, the significant increases in rents that we've seen in this city. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're, we're hitting an inflection point somewhere where even the public are going to say, you know what, slow down or stop. I mean, on this show, we get calls occasionally and people saying, look, no immigration mm-hmm. for a few years. Like this is, this has got to stop. Something is going to break. Or, or the immigration gets deflected or people will not settle. You got to remember the, these immigration numbers in particular, we like take that as a component of population growth. They're not evenly spread through the country like peanut butter. It's the fact that they're landing into just a few provinces and specifically just a few metropolitan areas. And as we have rents and and just the cost of living exceed the kind of incomes that are possible for many of these immigrants, and even for those of us who are are born here, that you'll see this type of possible uh, deflection of that into other uh, other municipalities across the country, but also not perhaps not wanting to come here. So that also is a possibility um, if we don't get ahead of our challenges in terms of housing and economic mobility. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen in the last six months, and maybe just as me and and maybe a bit superficial, but it seems to me we're actually making or there's a desire to start recognizing foreign credentials. Nursing Mm -hmm. is a classic classic example where in Ontario and in BC, they're finding all these foreign nurses and they all live in our respective provinces. We're just giving Mm -hmm. them a chance for the first time that we haven't Mm -hmm. done so in two or three decades. I mean, do you think there is an underlying institutional uh, attempt now to to say how do we sort of smooth the playing field here for these immigrants for trained foreign uh, professionals to actually have a chance to build on their career that they had in, in their respective countries do you think we're, just because of we had our labor force has been set up the challenges right. before us do you think the system is actually fundamentally actually trying to start actually address this now it's slow, but I think it's incredibly painful because we invite some of the most educated and most skilled uh, immigrants into this country. And the first thing we do is we de-skill them, that we begin to not recognize the kind of education and human capital they bring in and instead put them into positions and in the, in the jobs through which don't fully utilize the human capital that they themselves have spent decades to invest in. Mm. So I think that this is, I think, a more positive change, but I think in one ways in certain avenues, it's not changing fast enough because of just the sheer wastage of human capital that these immigrants bring to this country that we completely underutilize. Um, you said there was uneven... Um uh, I mean, immigrants are coming to this country. The three most popular mm-hmm. cities remain Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we should consider uh, perhaps a legislation that would 
tell immigrants, look, we need you to stay in, 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 in areas outside of those three major centers for the first five years. I'm not sure if you could do that under the Canadian Charter. Yeah. But do uh, we need, is there a way to encourage more of that? Do you think we need to be looking at that? Because you're right, we all don't need to be in Vancouver and Toronto and Montreal. There's this vast country out there, a lot of urban areas that certainly are smaller than these three cities, but they still have all the amenities, everything else. Is there a way, do you think, to encourage that? Well, I, I think the most direct way of encouraging that is ensuring that there is a level of economic activity in other 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 parts of this country outside of those three uh, metropolitan areas. That that those types of economic economic opportunities are also transmitted to say that if you're coming to Canada, would you like to consider coming into these other parts of the country? That it isn't just Montreal, Vancouver, and Toronto, but that there are many other parts. You can imagine parts like out in Calgary and Alberta, or even Manitoba that offer the kind of possibility um, of opportunities for them to, to build their lives in Canada. But I think a lot of it also reflects where at least the perception of economic opportunities are and the information towards where these opportunities are that ultimately immigrants land in those three cities. But yet, I think that that's also another project to make people aware of what lies beyond those three cities in Canada. Some have said, and there's a broader conversation on this, and, and uh, that Canada, to truly reach its its potential, our population actually, actually has to hit 100 million people. And what they mean by that is it gives you a strong domestic economy where you have companies that could have a strong domestic base and then they can expand internationally uh, to many other jurisdictions. And too often in this country, we have co- co- companies that have uh, really strong ideas, strong IP. They can get to a certain level, but our economy is not big enough. And bigger companies come and swallow them up, they buy them, and then they take that intellectual property and move it to other places. Uh, it also says, look, a strong domestic economy means our movie and television industry would do be- better if we had 100 million residents who can watch Canadian movies and, uh, and, and TV shows uh, t- through a variety of industries, educational, uh, educational institutions, all of that. Um, do you think this country um, should be looking at that type of longer-term thinking, or is it something that probably isn't going to be palatable for residents? Well, I think that it's the kind of infrastructure behind that growth that is critical, that as much as we talk about 100 million people coming into this country, it's what is the infrastructure behind that that needs to be also coming into play, whether it comes to our education system, our housing system, our economic, our, our economy in terms of the recognition of of really the innovation and the entrepreneurism that immigrants bring in, that the systems through which we need to support immigration, much less immigration to that level and that population at 100 million, I think, is lacking. I think that we are very much still struggling at now soon to be 40 million, that really we are going to need, if we really want to aspire for 100 million, we are going to need the infrastructure to support that 100 million population. And, and just to clarify, when you say infrastructure, you're talking about housing, variety of housing, you're talking about public transit, SkyTrain, mm-hmm. uh, more ra- roads, uh, um, you know, a, a vital port system. You're talking about that physical infrastructure, or are you talking about perhaps more more people infrastructure, or, or even uh, programs that recognize university degrees, whatever it may be? Is that what you're talking about in regards to the broader infrastructure that's needed? 
I'm talking about, if you will, the the promise that Canadians make to these immigrants, the fulfillment of those promises. That you you know, one of the most interesting things is to find out that three in ten immigrants who are new to the country take transit to work in metropolitan Vancouver. That's nearly twice the rate of the locals who are here. And I think that that talks to you to, to the grit of immigrants trying to build their lives in this country. And yet, at the same time, I think we as Canadians welcoming these new Canadians here have a responsibility that we can help all create the tools for their success because their success is ultimately our success. Absolutely. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.